Hey Property Insiders, I'm Mike Stenhouse and this is the Inside Property Investing Podcast. This episode is a little different to our usual format as we spend the whole episode looking in real detail at a single project. It's a real life case study that I want to deliver in as coherent a format as I'm able to to let you see over the course of the next 30 minutes or so how we found, structured and executed one of our most recent projects. If you're a long-time podcast listener, you might have heard some of these details before during our irregular monthly updates where I've shared the latest challenge or success that's been on my mind at the time, and you'll certainly be familiar with the project itself, IPI Wellington, as it's known on Instagram, our commercial to eight-bedroom HMO conversion that was secured on a lease option of sorts. Option of sorts. Option of sorts. <laughs> noticed that our recent projects have really stepped up their game in terms of the interior design and the level of finish. Now this is entirely down to Victoria's deeper involvement in the planning stages of each property, meaning that those all important details and finishing touches are carefully curated rather than being an afterthought. One of the biggest changes that we've made to help with this design-led approach is switching our furniture supplier to landlord furniture company. In terms of quality, their stuff is second to none, with all the promises you'd expect of solid furniture built from 18mm boards using reinforced raw runners, soft close hinges, made in the UK, and all that other important stuff that means your furniture will outlast your tenants. And it's true, their products really do live up to expectations and come with a three-year warranty so that you know you have made a good investment. But the main reason that we started working with them, which was a big decision for us as we'd been with our previous supplier for years, was their flexibility, their fully bespoke options, and their can-do attitude. Our first site visit with the Landlord Furniture Company team included a couple of tricky spaces where we couldn't figure out how to fit something standard in. Without hesitation, they came up with creative designs to maximize the space with made-to-measure sofas, dining tables, and wardrobes. Since then, every project has been a flurry of hundreds of fabric swatches, dozens of bedroom furniture finishes, and an array of standard and bespoke options to give Victoria the exact style she's looking for. Needless to say, if the prices were crazy, it wouldn't have gone any further than that, but I'm amazed at how cost-effective both their standard and bespoke products are. And with the delivery, installation, and rubbish removal taken care of by them as well, they make the whole process an absolute breeze. So whether you're an HMO or service accommodation investor, if you're wondering how to make your next project stand out on spare room or Airbnb, then Landlord Furniture Company are your answer. Check them out on Instagram, visit their website at landlordfurnitureco.co.uk or give them a call on 0161 633 2651. And as always, Tell them you heard about them on the podcast. Chapter one, sourcing the deal. The building first came to our attention in September 2017. By this stage in our investing career, we had good relationships with many of the local commercial agents as commercial property accounted for probably 80% or so of the stock that we were buying. I dug out a copy of the PDF advert that I was sent at the time and it's pretty typical of how commercial property is advertised in our area. Very few photos, in this case only four, which is actually two or three more than we often get. Three of these were different angles of the exterior of the building and then we had one lonely internal shot of a random empty room. Magnolia walls, green carpet tiles, that sort of stuff. To me this is great though. 
Sure, I can't get a feel for the rest of the building, but who cares, we'll be tearing it apart anyway. And our competition, who are used to buying residential property with 20 images of every room, detailed floor plans, and maybe even a virtual tour, see this lack of information as a hurdle and drop out of the running before they even run the numbers. The headline of the advert started, to let, then in brackets, may sell. A real joy for me to read as it indicates the vendor just needs a solution to their problem. More than likely it's had a long-term tenant in place and now needs a bit of work to bring it back up to standard. They're fed up paying business rates and standing charges on the empty building and honestly don't really care whether they find a tenant or a buyer just so long as it takes the headaches away from them. For us, it means there's scope to negotiate on the price, propose favorable terms like subject to planning or secure a lease option. The advert went on to explain that it was actually two adjoining buildings for sale with secure on-site parking for six cars. Now that's always going to be an exaggerated figure compared to how many cars will realistically fit, but a plus point nonetheless to have any sort of off-street parking. And then a list of room sizes. All in all about 230 square meters of usable space despite being advertised as around 180 square meters, given that most agents, and in this case this agent, tend to leave out cellar space when they are measuring the gross internal area. The asking price was £215,000 or £18,000 a year to rent the two buildings together. We knew the area well and specifically knew that we wanted another HMO here. So as soon as we got the email from our friendly agent to say that he had the keys and was ready for viewings, we arranged a viewing for that very afternoon. Chapter 2 Appraising the Deal The viewing back in autumn of 2017 doesn't really stand out in my mind as particularly memorable, but according to Victoria, the agent had brought his brand new puppy with him, possibly to soften us up a little bit. And aside from that, she said it ticked one of her main boxes as an attractive red brick building that wouldn't look out of place as residential. And in fact, that's an important side note that despite buying a lot of commercial property, virtually all of it started life as residential, so it doesn't feel unusual when we turn it back into residential. And the other thing she remembers is that when we lost count of the number of potential bedrooms that we could fit in because the layout was a little bit awkward, but it got up close towards double digits, we started to get a good feeling about it. Either way, it was interesting enough for us to move on to the next stage of our appraisal process and start pulling some of the numbers together. Now, there are four key elements required to put together a reasonable deal analysis for a commercial to HMO conversion. Your total project costs, meaning the purchase price, renovation costs, and all of the other associated project costs like legal fees, finance, professional services for architects and planning consultants, and so on. Your end value that the building will be worth when the conversion is completed, also called GDV or gross development value. Your projected income based on the number of rooms that you're creating and the estimated rental values of them. And your ongoing running costs for things like mortgage payments after refinance, utility bills, council tax, and anything else that you include in the rent like Wi-Fi and TV packages and cleaners, as well as a reasonable allowance for void periods and maintenance. Our running cost numbers are pretty accurate now based on data tracked across the portfolio for a number of years. So putting in a figure for this was literally 30 seconds of effort with the spreadsheet. Our projected income was relatively straightforward as well as we'd created a rough floor plan during the viewing using an app called Magic Plan. 
something that we always do so that we can begin playing around with different layouts when we're doing that initial appraisal process. We printed a couple of copies of the floor plans that we'd created and despite not immediately agreeing on the final layout straight away, we both agreed that the building was capable of housing eight double bedrooms after shuffling some of the internal walls around. Now a useful hack for quickly estimating this number of bedrooms even before a viewing is to divide the total square meterage of the building by 25 to give you an indication of how many rooms you'll be able to fit in. In this instance, the 230 square meter building gives an answer of 9.2 bedrooms. So there was perhaps potential to squeeze one extra bedroom in, but the eight bedroom option left us plenty of communal space, which is something that we always like to offer. Once we knew the number of bedrooms, we were able to assign a rental value per room and determine that our monthly rental income at full occupancy would be around four and a half thousand pounds. Next up, we looked at our end value, as in the world of commercial to HMO conversions, this is a pretty straightforward formula based on the annual rental income and what we call an area multiplier. Working through the formula, in this case where the annual rental income was £54,000, gave us a projected end valuation of £405,000 which just left the project costs to flesh out. And I'll be honest, that's something that I have been known to be a little bit over-optimistic with in the past. We actually have a price per square meter conversion cost for commercial to residential buildings that usually proves to be pretty accurate, around about 750 pounds per square meter, which would have given us a total renovation cost of around 170,000 pounds for this building. But I obviously knew better, I didn't believe my own numbers, and I figured that we could do this renovation for much less than our usual average. So I budgeted 125 grand for the renovations and all other costs, and presumed that we'd be able to buy it for £200,000 based on a slight reduction on the £215,000 asking price. So by the time that we'd finished our number crunching, the deal looked pretty favourable. A total spend of £325,000 with an end value of £405,000 meaning cash left in after refinance of around £40,000. The rental income was expected to be £54,000 per year and after running costs we thought we'd get around £25,000 net profit giving us a pretty healthy 60% return on investment. With numbers like that it was time to get serious and try and secure this deal. Chapter 3 Securing the Deal When it comes to the age old chicken and egg question of what do you try and find first, the deal or the money, we're always trying to push both in tandem, keeping a lookout for good deals but also building relationships with good investors. Now, I've got no issue with offering on properties without an investor lined up, as we did in this instance because I know that we've got a handful of money partners who are interested in these types of deals. This approach allows us to move quickly with agents making offers within hours of a viewing, but to be clear, we don't get an offer accepted and then start looking for investors. We've already had lengthy discussions with them about what they're looking for, their investment limits, location preferences, and so on. A process which can take months from an initial email inquiry coming into us to someone actually having enough faith in us to put their money on the table. So without a specific investor lined up, but confidence that we could secure one quickly, we began our discussions with the agents. 
In this case, it took me a week to get back to him and the first email read like this. Hi Andy, I tried calling, but I believe you're out of the office this afternoon. I would have come back to you sooner, but dropped my phone off the boat at the weekend, so I've been trying to sort that out. Just as an aside on that, it seems to have been a bit of a recurring theme for me dropping my phone into water. So now that we actually live on the boat, I don't hold out much hope for my current phone. Anyway, the email continues. We like the building you showed us last week. The layout is a little bit awkward, but we can make it work, we think. I don't want to mess you around though, so we had a look at the figures and it'd need to be £200,000 for it to make sense to us. Do you think the vendor would come down to that level? He came back to me that evening, his client needed some time to think about it but was considering it and would let me know ASAP. One week passed, then two, and finally he came back to say that he'd sell it for £204,000. Now by this time we did have an investor lined up after sending the high level details to six people who we knew had the cash and were keen to work with us. I think actually most of that group of six came back to us showing interest but one investor in particular had put in some real time and effort to get to know us and we were as keen to work with him as he was to work with us. We went back to the agent and said we'd paid the £204,000 that he wanted subject to planning and after a little negotiation offered to increase our price by £6,000 if he agreed which basically covered four months of his potential rent to take the pain off of the business rates and the utility bills and all the other costs that he would be paying out whilst we were waiting for planning to be approved. Now this option seemed to pique his interest and despite it taking the best part of three months to finalise the terms of the agreement, by mid-December we had agreed to a 12-month lease on the building at £1,200 per month with an option to buy it at any point during that lease for £204,000. The terms with our joint venture partner were fairly typical. We created a new limited company and took 50 shares each. The investor would fund the purchase and the renovation costs of the project and at the end we would refinance, extract as much cash as possible and any profit would be split 50-50 on a monthly basis. It took another couple of months to finalise the terms of the lease with the vendor, which ultimately wasn't actually signed until June 2018. Now, it blows me away when I look back at this timeline, but I imagine it's probably not all that uncommon. Nine months from viewing to actually taking control of the property, in this case via signing the lease, which seems to have come down to the vendor taking weeks to respond to every query that we sent to them. The upside to this was that we'd been able to get access to the building in the meantime and had submitted our planning application at the end of April. By the time we signed the lease in June, we were only about two weeks off receiving the decision notice from the council to confirm that planning had been approved. Instead of going back to the vendor at this stage to pull out of the lease and push forward with a simple purchase, we realised that the monthly lease amount was significantly less than the cost of bridging finance and that was before we added in all of the additional fees for valuation, solicitors and so on that we would have incurred with a bridging loan. So we started on the work with the vendor providing us with cheap finance in effect, hoping that he'd never stop by for a visit and see the state that we'd got his building into. Chapter 4. The Renovation Process I mentioned that we decided to use the lease as cheap finance, which is true, but we didn't reach that decision straight away. It was more of a gradual realisation after months of frustration with the finance company that we were trying to secure the bridging loan with. 
The original plan was to get a bridge to term loan from one of the big commercial banks and like the negotiations with the vendor, this process just seemed to drag on and on. The valuation report was the first kick in the teeth with a current valuation of £204,000, exactly what we'd agreed to buy it for, so nothing wrong there, but a projected end value of only £305,000, way below what I thought we would be able to get and importantly, way below what I had told our investor that we'd be able to get. Thankfully though, he trusted our experience and agreed that we would likely get a better valuation once the work was actually complete and we could show the standard of the property that we had created and prove the rents as well. But it wasn't the best start for us. From there on, it was weeks and ultimately months of the lenders saying that they needed just one more bank statement, one more query answering, one more piece of our lives signed away. By early September, it was clear that the finance to buy the building wasn't going to materialize anytime soon, so we agreed with the vendor that we could start work on the condition that we'd return it to the original condition if the sale fell through. And we finally made a start on the renovation a full year after our first viewing. The renovation was actually pretty straightforward from a technical perspective, but that's not to say it wasn't more complicated than I'd originally anticipated. I think just the volume of work required to knock two buildings into one was lost on me initially and in addition to that, despite a lot of the building seeming to be in reasonable condition at the first viewing, thinking that we could salvage the radiators and some of the electrics, thinking we wouldn't need to re-skim the entire building, on closer inspection and by the time we'd stripped out everything that we needed to, the reality was that pretty much everything needed to be replaced and redone. Long story short then, our total renovation costs spiralled. Remember earlier I said that based on our usual £750 per square metre average for converting commercial buildings into residential, the budget for this project would have been about £170,000, but I thought better and we could do it for only £120,000. Well, hindsight is a truly wonderful thing, as I can now look back and tell you that our total renovation budget was exactly £174,425. It just goes to show that I shouldn't second guess my numbers, and me being an optimist is not always the best idea. On top of that, we had some hefty costs for business rates that we should be able to claim back, but which are still outstanding got legal fees and finance application costs which also racked up by the time we'd sorted out the details of the lease and the purchase despite half of them being for that finance application that never came to anything and £5,000 for planning application and consultancy fees but that in my opinion was always money well spent having been through a hellish application in the past where we tried to save money and ended up costing ourselves about 12 months on the project timeline. So all in all, our total spend on the project was around £400,000, a fairly significant seventy-five grand, or 23% more than we originally projected. But that's only half of the story. Chapter 5. The End Result A lot of people will look at our renovation budgets and total costs as vast sums of money that can't possibly make sense for an HMO investment. When you see magazine articles and online case studies showing projects with a total renovation budget of £30,000 or a total spend of less than £200,000, you'd be entitled to question why our projects end up costing us so much. 
To me, it's no cause for concern though. We know our product, we know our customers, and we know our returns. We like to buy commercial buildings instead of residential as it gives us a lot more space to work with. Not necessarily to cram in more bedrooms, but to create bigger bedrooms and provide more communal space. We also spend more on the fabric of the building, replacing windows, replacing all of the electrics and plumbing, completely reconfiguring the layout if that's what the building demands. This gives us a truly purpose-built HMO that's difficult for a terraced house with converted lounge to ever compete with. And it means that we don't have expensive maintenance bills to try and maintain an aging boiler or someone else's dodgy wiring. Obviously, Victoria also gets let loose with the interior design and she's great at finding a bargain, but when we're spending so much on the core of the building, we don't then want to scrimp on the finishes. All of this comes together to create an expensive investment, but also one which, in our opinion, will deliver the most consistent ROI over the long term. Even if the final budget figures didn't fill us with the warm and fuzzies on this project, we were thrilled with the aesthetic outcome and figured that we could push the rents a little above our already high original projections. We ended up with the house fully tenanted very soon after completion, with the first tenant moving in the day that the work finished and the other seven following soon after, with an average rent of around about £585 per month, increasing our annual revenue by a few thousand pounds. Based on that total annual figure of £56,100, our area multiplier of 10 times the annual rent and an expectation that the bank would deduct 25% from that figure for running costs, we were hoping for a valuation of around £420,000, a little over our original projection. It's the same formula that we've seen multiple times in the past, so we submitted our application with a pretty reasonable level of confidence that we'd get it. With everything going on with Brexit, however, things are never certain and I crossed my fingers, desperate not to have to tell our partner that not only was the project cost 23% over what I originally projected, but the valuation wasn't as much as we'd hoped either. You'll imagine my absolute delight then when for the first time in our decade of buying and selling property, the valuation actually came in above what we'd requested. I read through the report and discovered that this surveyor, most likely being guided by the lender's criteria, LandBay, a bank that we haven't worked with before, were only deducting 20% for running costs rather than the usual 25%, meaning that they were willing to value the property at a huge £450,000. Now, I won't say it was the first bit of good news in this project, as overall we are thrilled with how it's turned out. Planning sailed through without issue, the lease option was a nice bonus for us, the end product and subsequent demand for rooms was also really reassuring, but this news definitely helped improve our ultimate ROI figure. It's been about six months since our first housemate moved in, but we're only now getting to the stage where the refinance is close to being finalised, so the big question you might be wondering is why is it all taking so long? Partly, it's just down to the fact that commercial finance seems to be a slow-moving beast with no real signs of improving. Despite rates coming down and more lenders entering the market, both of which are great news for investors, there still seems to be a real mindset of that's just the way things are done amongst all of the brokers and lenders and banks and everyone else involved in the process. 
Honestly, I think several areas of the property service world need a nimble firm to come in and shake things up, including the finance world, but at least for the moment, it just trundles along and we just have to deal with that. The £450,000 valuation will give us a loan of around about grand at 3.79% on a five-year fixed deal. Now that'll leave 60 grand tied up in the project for the foreseeable future. It'll give us a monthly net profit of around about two and a half thousand pounds and therefore a return on investment of around 50%. So not quite the 60% that we originally projected up front, but not a million miles away either. And certainly still a figure that we're very happy to share as a success. Looking back at the timeline at a high level, it amazes me how little time was actually spent on the physical conversion works. We viewed it in September 2017. We had a deal agreed by the end of the year, but not finalized until June 2018. We started work in August that year and completed it in January 2019. We took about a month to fill the rooms and then five months on the refinance. So just shy of two years from first setting eyes on it, I'm happy to call this project a success and very nearly complete. There are parts that we could definitely still improve upon, like our cost estimates and being more pushy with vendors, agents and brokers to reduce our overall schedule. But ultimately, it's another great asset in the portfolio and most importantly, another decent boost to our monthly income. For those of you listening who are thinking about taking a step up to larger projects, I would actively encourage it. There are so many benefits to them and a lot less complexity than most people think. Hopefully this episode gives you some insight into that. Even when things go wrong, a good project will have enough buffer to absorb some of these hiccups and still deliver. And for those of you who are just thinking about getting started with HMO investing, then I still wouldn't advise against jumping in at the deep end, but make sure that you've got the right support in place. That's where it's time to mention our eight-week HMO challenge, starting in early August and guiding you through the early stages of successful HMO investing making sure your actions align with your longer term goals, helping you identify the best areas for investing, working with you to find the best properties within those areas and understanding how to finance it all. It's an intensive eight week challenge with live coaching calls, regular assignments and ongoing support, as well as lifetime access to our online HMO course and a year's membership to our new IPI community as well, all for only 600 pounds. To find out more about the challenge, or grab one of the final remaining spaces, go to insidepropertyinvesting.com forward slash eight weeks or click on the link in the episode description. I really hope you found this episode valuable in some way. And as always, I'd love to hear your comments and feedback in our various outlets. So head over to Instagram or Facebook or into the IPI community if you're already a member and let us know what you thought. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you.